Luke chapter 19, but first we're going to read from Zechariah chapter 9, and then we'll go to Luke chapter 19. Uh, Luke, of course, means light bearer. He was the beloved physician. People loved him. While he wasn't one of the twelve, he was one of our gospel writers, wrote under the inspiration of God, and we know he traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey. And Luke writes about 20, he talks about 20 miracles. Can you imagine being a physician, seeing what Jesus could do with the human body? And then to write about that, he must have just been blown away by what Jesus could do that modern medicine of that day couldn't and even today can't. He writes several songs in, in Luke, more than any other book except the book of songs, which is the book of Psalms. He writes about Psalms. History tells us that the, the, there were 256,600 lambs killed at one Passover. And so if you figure the average Jewish family has 10 people, that's right, 10. That means there were 2.6 million people in Jerusalem at one Passover. They'd travel from all over. You remember they'd come and they'd buy their Passover lambs in the temple. They'd get their currency exchanged in the temple, and Jesus got angry because they were being taken advantage of and taken advantage of, and he turned the t- tables over. That's right after, right after this uh, riding in, this Palm Sunday experience, which we're looking at this morning. But we know that uh, lambs, of course, point to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, as John pointed out. He is the Lamb of God. And when they set Jesus aside, and he rode in on a donkey. And that, of course, was them choosing their lamb. And, of course, many of them choo- chose not, not to follow him and not to believe. Um, there's something floating around on the Internet. Just wanted to address that because I was doing a Passover. Ten churches came together up north. People from ten churches, four pastors were there. We did the Passover. And I gave an opportunity for questions. And one lady said, well, I read where they, when lambs were born, they'd wrap them up in swaddling clothes and I said, no, ma'am, that is something that people say, but there's no history of that. There's nothing in archaeology that would uh, support that. It sounds neat. And there's a lot of sensationalism out there to sort of spice up preaching and so forth, and people make up things. Uh, but I wanted to just mention that we don't find any evidence of that. While you will find it on the Internet, you won't find any historical or archaeological evidence, evidence of that. So just wanted to say that while I'm preaching this passage here about the Lord Jesus riding in. Uh, let's stand and read Zechariah 9, 9. Zechariah 9, 9. And this is a simple verse. It says here, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. God bless us as we take a look in your book today. In Luke chapter 19. And look at this lamb. This lowly savior who rode in. Only to be offered as a lamb for the sin of the world. Bless us today. We need you. I need you just to preach effectively. So that the Holy Spirit will speak through your word to hearts. Bless now at this moment. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have in the lobby a stack of sheets explaining a little bit about Daniel's 70th week. Took it out of one of my uh, books for seminary, my notes, and I put it out there for you to get. 
That's very significant, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. While I'm not going to preach that this morning, it certainly lines up perfectly with this day. This is a good week because Easter this week lines up with the actual Passover and the events this week is Passover week as well. A lot of years it's not that way. We go by a calendar where Jews go by the moon. And so normally it's not always the same. But this is really the Holy Week. We know when Jesus died. We don't know when he was born. But we know specifically when he died, because he died of Passover that year of AD 32. We know that. And so this week, remember, I believe in a Thursday crucifixion, because that's when the Jews kill the lamb to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And uh, so this week, remember that uh, he did die this week. If you believe Friday, that's fine, too. We don't argue over that. But we know this is the week. This is the holy week. That he humbled himself and rode in. I, I, we talked about, uh, in Sunday school, we talked a little bit about humility. And it was mentioned about Nebuchadnezzar. I, I wasn't here last week, but I know it must have been talked about. How while he's speaking and bragging on all he did, God brought him down mentally to be a, to be a lunatic. Herod in Acts 12, remember, while he takes glory for something God does, he's smitten with worms and dies. And think of even Peter, one of the disciples, while he's saying, let's build a tabernacle of Moses and Elijah. God, while he's speaking, interrupts him from heaven and says, no, this is my beloved son. Humility is a great thing. And he sets a great example here as a Lord, humble and lowly, riding on this colt into the holy city. But the thing about Daniel's 70th week is 69 weeks have been fulfilled. There were 70 weeks, which means 490 years. One week represented seven years, and you have this. You can get it afterwards. But one week hadn't been fulfilled in the Jewish calendar. When the Jews look out over history, they see history going throughout time, and they see the last week yet to be fulfilled as the tribulation time. The tribulation is not for the church. It's for the Jews to get saved, to break them to the point of salvation. And this chart will show you how, they, how we calculate that. And from the decree of Cyrus and Nehemiah to the very day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was the fulfillment of the 483 years of prophecy to the Jew. All done, one week to go. And then the church age, which, of course, you'll see on the graph, it doesn't show that. But get that, study that this week. We're back to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We look, first of all, at this colt, the colt here in verses 28 to 36. In verse 28, it says, Jesus rode up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's elevated. And he's taking a lowly road and riding up to the holy city. And this is the same exact Route that David took when he was returning to Jerusalem after hiding from his own son, Absalom. And David made a lot of mistakes, thus we have Absalom. Absalom tried to take over the kingdom. It crushed David's spirit. And David, as he rode back to the city, was weeping. Weeping in public humiliation because of what had happened. And of course, we know that in our text, Jesus will be weeping He's about to be publicly humiliated. Now remember, David is a type of Jesus Christ. So we see a lot of those parallels there. So here he is, he's riding up. And we know it says he goes by Beth Podge, which means house of unripe figs. 
Then he goes by Bethany. Remember the great story of, we'll talk about momentarily today, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the resurrection. He rides by Bethany, which means house of God. And he's on the way now to the holy city. And uh, Bethany, uh, and, and now is referred to in the Aramaic as, or excuse me, in the, um, uh, the Arabic language as El Azra, meaning after Lazarus. It had a reputation that never went away. Now, in verse 30, you see here, in verse 30, it says here, Go into the village over against you, in which it entering you'll find a colt tied there. And it says that a man never sat on it. So it's an unbroken donkey, young donkey. And getting on that thing normally would be uh, humiliating. <laughs> but because he's Lord of all, it was simple for him. The donkey submitted. And we know that animals quite often uh, are submissive uh, to the point of, of total submissive, to, totally submissive to man. You think about the times that happened. Remember the Garden of Eden. Remember in Noah's day, they came in obedience two by two. In the millennial kingdom, they'll be in total submission again. We'll be totally dominant over them. They'll obey everything we ask. And then there's several isolated incidents in Scripture, right? The fish with a coin in its mouth. The, the, the wise ass that spoke, or the, uh, spoke, I shouldn't say the dumb ass that spoke, but that's kind of wise when you think of a donkey speaking. And then this cult of an ass here, which is unbroken, and yet we see that uh, it, it's utilized for God and totally submissive. And we know that Job chapter 11 compares us to donkeys. It says, we're born like a wild ass's colt. And Job 5.22 says that we're tied by cords of sin. So just like this donkey, it's a type of a sinner. It's tied, it's unbroken. And we know going way back to Genesis, what a great object lesson and picture that is. Abraham, a type of God. And Isaac, a type of God's son. And this donkey here, a type of a sinner. Wood on its back is a type of sin. They get to this special place. And, uh, of course, we know Isaac was going to be this offering, but God provided a substitute because Isaac was only a type to point to Christ. He didn't really have to die. But Abraham was going to kill him. So we see quite often donkeys used in scriptures, in scripture and so forth. And, of course, we know Jesus became sin for us. When a king would ride on a donkey, it meant peace. When he would ride in on a horse, it meant war. He came once on a donkey... And brought peace to the hearts of people who trust him. But he'll come back next time on a horse. Amen. I mean, he's going to come back on a white horse and, then, and set up his kingdom. We're going to be with him. What a time that is going to be. So here we have this unbroken colt. And in verse 31, I like it. He says, if anybody asks when you're untying the colt, just tell them the Lord has need of him. Oh, God could have, being God, he could have created an animal, but he always seems to use mankind. Do you know, a lot of times we don't realize God has need of us or something that belongs to us. Now, he can do without us, can he? But isn't it great that he still uses us? Hey, when I stand up to preach, I was up here praying a few moments ago, and I realize how unworthy I am to preach the word of God. You know, I had a preacher friend say, if you knew my heart, you'd never listen to me preach. That's so true about all of us. We know our hearts are desperately wicked. You know your thoughts this week and what they were like. 
And yet God still utilizes us. And you want to mark your Bibles now here in verses 31 and 33. Find those two verses here. And you need to mark this in your Bible. It's important. In verse 31, he says here, Because the Lord hath need of him. And the Bible says, And when they were sent away, they found, even as he had said unto them, just like he said, they would find an animal. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? Of course, they're going to tell him he has need of them. But this word owners and this word Lord in verse 31 and the word owners in verse 33, you want to circle those and draw a line and connect them because of the same Greek word. It's a Greek word, kurios, which means Lord or master. So here you have these owners who the Lord says, go get their animal, and they're the, they're the master of the animal, they're the Lord of the animal, and they release him to him. You know why? Because he's Lord of all. He owns it all. Everything that you have is really his because he provided it for you. He's Lord of all. I love that. That the, 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 the Lord of the animals submitted to the Lord of all. Yeah, I have a lot of things and I have a lot of time and I have a lot of things in my life, a lot of big things that have happened in my life. But do you know I have to submit and realize that God's sovereign I'm just a child of God. He's Lord of all. He's a master of everything. Someone once said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He'd be a lunatic to say I'm the son of God, or God in the flesh, if he wasn't. Or he'd be a liar if he said it and he wasn't. But you know what? He's neither lunatic nor liar. He's Lord. He's Lord today. Of everything that's going on in our cruel, wicked world, he's Lord. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. Many of our leaders don't know what they're doing, but he knows what he's doing. Sometimes I don't know what I'm doing, but he knows what he's doing. Sometimes I say, God, what's going on? Because I don't understand. He always does because he's Lord. The question is, do you allow him to be Lord of your life? He's Lord of all, whether we submit or not. But do you allow him to be Lord of those little secret things in your life? Do you trust him? Do you trust him to provide for you, to guide you, to protect you? He's Lord. And so here he is, Lord of all. Now in verse 36, in verse 35... They put some garments over the animal, the donkey, and he rides this animal. And then as he's riding, they're putting uh, clothing down. And Matthew's account says they also put palm branches down. We're not going to talk about what they speak of, but there's several things palm branches point to in Scripture. But we know that they did this for Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9 when he wrote in. They put their garments down. It's to say, you are Lord. You are Master. And everyone wanted him to conquer everything because he's Lord. He had done all these miracles and the crowds were swelling. Remember early in his ministry he said, don't tell anyone about this. He didn't want the big crowds. It wasn't his time. Now the big crowds are here. I mean, he rides into Jerusalem and thousands upon thousands of people are cheering for him because of all the miracles he had did, had done, excuse me, but not realizing he didn't come. He didn't come to deliver them from Rome. He came to deliver them from sin. So they're putting all these clothing down, and we have here a crowd of people in verse 37. 
Look what it says in verse 37. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives. I've been there. That's a beautiful descent. It's a beautiful walk to look over and see Jerusalem. He's arriving now. He's at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Headed over the valley and he'll go up into the holy city. And while he's there, it says here that the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, why are they praising him? For the works they had seen. It's easy for us to praise God when he does something for us. You know, he did this for me this week or he did this for me last week. Oh, thank God I got the job I've been praying for. Praise the Lord. And we always are willing to praise Him for what He does. But folks, we need to praise Him for who He is. He's Lord. He's Master. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Remember that. He deserves our praise even when things aren't going good. I praise the Lord today. He's in control. I praise the Lord today as I see all this unfolding in the world and I see Russia, what's going on in Ukraine. Thank God he's in control because no one else in this world is. Everything's helter-skelter. It's just so confusing and discouraging if you let it bother you. I can't watch. I watch the news for 10, 20 minutes. i got to shut it off. When I see the flow of illegals coming in, I'm like, what is going on? And I see the bombs dropping. And I see the perversion, morality, and the immorality, I should say, the moral perversion in our country. I'm like, what is wrong with people? What's going on? Well, people are in darkness. They don't have understanding because they're in sin. They don't know the master of the sea. They don't know the Lord of lords. I know him. I'm thankful for that. And I trust that he's in control. And the Bible says men are going to wax worse and worse. And I trust he's Lord. Here are the people. They're praising him. He's all this fame. They're praising him because of what he has done. But shortly thereafter, he'll be crucified. Some of the same people would join in the crowd that said, we'll take Barabbas. Crucify him. These are just disciples, but the city people will join in. So there's a, a mass of people as they arrive into the city. The time is right. Verse 38. It says here in verse 38, they cried, blessed. That's a great word. Blessed. You know what word that is, a Greek word? Eulogy. Eulogo, eulogy. We go to a funeral. And I'll read the obituary, but I usually tell people I don't eulogize people unless I've known them for many, many years. I won't say much about your person. But boy, someone will get up and say, oh, good old Uncle Joe. He wasn't drunk every weekend. You know? He was just a good guy. Well, he gave free beer to anybody that was thirsty. And they'll go on about Uncle Joe. And I'm thinking, this is just not true. Uncle Joe was a drunk and a bum and a troublemaker in the community. But boy, we eulogize him. Now they're eulogizing Jesus, and he is deserving. He's worthy, isn't he? You know, John cried in Revelation. He couldn't find anyone worthy to open the scroll and tell us about things to come. But there was one who was worthy, and that's our Lord. So here they're eulogizing him, and they're saying, in, 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 in Matthew's account, they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, with a word you know. Save us now, save us now. You know that Hebrew word. 
They said, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. They wanted salvation from Rome. This is the same song they sung in Psalm 118 at the Passover. We taught that the night of the Passover. And then they would go on to sing that night of the Passover. This is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. They're singing about that day. It's one thing about Calvary I rejoice in. He died for me. He shed his blood for your sins so that you don't have to go to hell. And if you're here today and you haven't accepted him, you deserve hell because you rejected the one who gave his life for you. So they they say blessed and they're just praising him to deliver them. In verse 38, it says, In the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory. Our word, doxa, our word doxology, praise God. We glorify him today. And then some of the Pharisees are here. You know, the Pharisees, they're, they're quite something, aren't they? Every knee is going to bow one day. The Pharisees at the great white throne will bow. So will all the skeptics and the agnostics. And we, we shouldn't rejoice in the fact that they're going to hell. You know, sometimes I, I watch TV and I shut it off. And I think, boy, they're going to stand before the Lord one day. And then I think, wait a minute. I'm supposed to have compassion for these people. That's hard to do, isn't it? Huh? That's where the rubber meets the road, they say. It is hard to ca- have compassion for people who I don't like. People who belittle my Lord, belittle Christianity. It's hard to have compassion, but he does. The Bible said God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, here are the Pharisees, the separatists. And they say, rebuke your disciples, quiet them down. And he said, if they don't cry out, the stones will cry out. Can you imagine when the Lord comes back, the whole universe is going to rejoice. The Bible said the trees will clap their hands. I don't know how all that's going to work, but I'm looking forward to that. Uh, all of the, the Bible said the whole creation groans waiting for his return to this earth, that millennial kingdom. Oh, everybody, the, the animals and the, and the roses and, and the, uh, you know, every, every insect, everything in the universe waits. They groan waiting for him to come back. And when he comes back, I could just imagine. When I was a kid, I guess I was 10 or so, we went to Disney World. I hate to even say that Walt Disney would turn over in his grave. He knew what's going on there today. Their morals are perverse. We, we understand that. But there was a little tiki bird room. Some of you have been there. And the totem poles were singing and the birds and the flowers were singing and everybody was singing in the tiki bird room. And I thought, this is so cool as a young kid, you know. Just think when Jesus comes back. <laughs> All of creation is just praising the Lord. And we can't hardly get people to say, somebody said amen. I'm just joking. But listen. We can't get excited about our salvation or his return. Just think of what it's going to be like when he steps out, comes down and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. And you know what? I'm going to be with him. You're going to be with him if you're saved. We're raptured, but seven years later we come back with him. In all of creation, they don't have to groan anymore. He's going to deal with everything. Fair, there's going to be a justice system here. He's going to rule over the earth for a thousand years. I can't wait, and I just praise the Lord for that. He said the stones will immediately cry out, praise God. We have a cult and a crowd of people, and finally we have a compassionate Savior. In verses 41, 
And this just got me this week. I was in my office and uh, yeah, I've preached every chapter in the Bible, but of course, you know, you do it again and again. And, and I don't remember when I preached this last, but it just got to me. I began to cry in my office. I thought about the, 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 the Lord Jesus and how he cared for me. And he cared for the Pharisees. He cared for the holy city. And he weeps. Look at what it says here, verse 41. And he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. He's looking at the city, he's riding up the city, and as he got close, he began to weep. Jesus weeps three times in Scripture. He wept in Hebrews, it says, praying for us. He wept when Lazarus died. Now, he wept when Lazarus died out of empathy for Lazarus' sisters. He felt their pain. And the Bible says in Romans, weep with those who weep. So he does that as an example. But here he weeps, and this is a much stronger word. Different Greek word than, than Luke, uh, John eleven thirty five. This word in, in, includes a mourning, grieving, sobbing out loud is what the word means. He's approaching the city, and remember the people, the disciples are following him into the city, and the crowds are waiting, and what's he doing? He's weeping. Why is he weeping? He's weeping because they were people who were lost. He had compassion for them. He's, he's crying because it's a well and it's a, it's a sobbing because he, he's, he's broken for these people because they're lost. He has compassion for the lost. Why didn't he weep like that over Lazarus? Because number one, he knew he'd raise Lazarus. Number two, he conquered death. So Lazarus' death didn't really bother him. He wept for the sisters who were broken. But here he's really, really bothered much more than at Lazarus because the world's going to hell. And we ought to have that kind of compassion. Jude says people with compassion are difference makers. I love Peter. I think of Peter often. I think of me. He did great things for God. That's not how I think of me. I think of what a jerk he was sometimes. Arrogant. Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. No, you ain't washing my feet. That's a southern way of saying it. You ain't washing my feet. And Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Peter's a follower of the Lord, and look how he's acting. Peter went in the garden. He took his sword out, and he tried to cut the guy's head off. And the guy ducked, and he got his ear. And you think... Peter, what, what's the acting? Wouldn't you do the same thing if you had known Jesus? And here's a guy, you don't, you don't understand everything. He didn't, the disciples were so confused when he died, they went and hid. They didn't listen clearly. He talked about all this. But, but Peter, he's thinking, they're going to take my Lord. They ain't going to take my Lord. And gets his sword out. So we see Peter so carnal and fleshly. And then, the worst of all, as when Jesus had died and Peter is seated standing and walking. Read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not, nor sitteth nor in the seat of the cornfield, nor standeth with the way. Line that up with your Bible. It's great. It's great to look at that. I don't have time for that today. But we know that Peter denied him three times. Three times. And finally he cursed and swore. I don't know the blankety blank man. I don't know him. I told you I didn't know him. Talk about denying the Lord. And yet he'd be the one, one of the great 
church pillars of the Jewish church, wouldn't he? Do you know what I like about Peter, though? Of course, he was confronted on the Sea of Galilee and asked three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And he finally lowers the love from agape to philios because Peter couldn't really say I love you with agape love because he didn't at that time. He would learn to, and he'd learn to die upside down on a cross for Jesus. But that's not what I love about him. You know what I love about him? Is that when the cock crowed the third time, this same Greek word describes Peter's brokenness. He wept and he sobbed and he wept and he sobbed because he had denied his Lord. I love that. He was a broken man. And if God has to break you, he will. He broke Peter. He could never use Peter unless he broke him. Could you imagine the disciples turning a resume to a church? Well, if I preach, you've got to know I'm going to be wearing a robe and sandals. I have a very long beard. But I've been with Jesus. And I don't care what we put on papers, our education. That's not what's important. I know guys that have a lot of education. They don't have God's power. They're useless. But Peter was broken. And I love that about Peter. And he wept and he sobbed. And here's Jesus sobbing. And while, look at verse 42. You've got to mark this. The, verse 41 ends with, he wept over it, comma. Comma. It doesn't end there, does it? Saying. And as he's saying this, he's sobbing. If thou hast known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, and now they are hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee. He is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, just 38 years later. Look over with me to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4. We're almost finished. Because several times in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 6, 6, Isaiah 29, 3, the destruction of Jerusalem is prophesied. And here in Ezekiel 4, verse 2, it says here, a siege of Jerusalem is portrayed. It says in verse 1, Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee and portray upon the city even Jerusalem and lay siege against it and build a fort against it and cast a mound against it and set a camp also against it and set battering rams round about it. Jerusalem's destruction was foretold several times. And Jerusalem was destroyed several times. And the final time where they'd be totally scattered was A.D. 70. Twofold prophecies. You remember when Daniel's own familiar friend betrayed him? That was prophetic, wasn't it? Because one day Jesus in the same spot, near the same little brook, in the Garden of Gethsemane, would be betrayed by, by Judas Iscariot. And yet he'd call him a friend just a few hours before in the upper room. So he's sobbing and he says about Jerusalem back in Luke 12, uh, 1944, he says, they're going to compassion, they're gonna, there's a siege going to come against the city. And then he says in verse 40, and shall lay even thee with thy ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Most people believe that every stone of the temple would be torn down. And if you go there today, it's just a level spot with concrete poured over it. And there's a mosque there. And when I was there with Yaniv, our Jewish guide, we were under a covered area and he was talking about the Temple Mount. 
And the Jordanian over there with a rifle started hollering obscenities at him because he was a Jew. But yet one day, a temple's going to be built there, and that mosque isn't going to last. That's a holy place of God. And there'll be a temple for the tribulation and for the millennium. And so here, he says here, all the stones have been torn down, because thou knewest not the time or the season of thy visitation. What is that, Brother Dan? This is a Greek word, episcopal, excuse me. We get our word episcopal from it. What is an episcopal? Episcopal priest is one who can totally controls everything in the church. They don't have a congregational form of government where they vote on things. They don't have a board-run government, Presbyterios is that word, where the board decides. They have a totally bishop-run organization. There's a, there's a balance, by the way, between all three in a good church. But here he says, because of the day of thy visitation. This word, Episcopal, Episcopal has a little word scope in it. What's a microscope? You'll look at things carefully. He said, you weren't watching. And because you weren't watching, and when I came, you didn't accept me, Jerusalem will be trodden down. It'll be destroyed, totally leveled. Isn't that something? Hey, we need to look for the Lord's coming. Are you looking for his coming? He's coming. I love, I don't love it, but I I love the verse. He came to his own, and his own received him not. He came to the Jews first. Came to the Jews first, and they didn't want him. Then he said, now go to the Gentiles. I'm so so thankful for the Great Commission. Because he he thought of me. I was on his mind when he was on the cross. You were on his mind. And I love 2 Corinthians 6 too, which says, now is the day of salvation. I read this week where 20-something-year-old professional quarterbacks run over by a car. You, You don't know about tomorrow. You don't even know about today. A majority of people who die don't know when it's coming. Some are told you have just a few weeks and they can get things in order. Most don't know that. Both my mom and dad knew. I was thankful. My dad had Lou Gehrig's. He was breathing more difficult. He wouldn't carry oxygen. I don't know why, but we wanted him to do that. But my mom had kidney failure and did not want to go do dialysis. And I don't know why, but she didn't want to live like that. She's 85. Both of them knew it was close. But so many people, car crashes, heart attacks, you don't know about tomorrow. You don't have the assurance even of today. Because death, there's an appointment everyone everyone has with death. And today's a day of salvation. You say, Brother Dan, what do you mean? Well, you're here today. It's not an accident you're here. And if you're not born again, this would be a great day to be saved. I was reading this thing by D.L. Moody this week. I thought this was interesting. Dwight Moody, he preached a sermon. What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? He was tired that day. And rather than have a normal invitation, he said, I'm going to give you a week to think over your decision so you can make a decision on what you're going to do with Jesus, whether you're going to accept him or not. And when Ira Sankey got up and led the invitation song, while they're singing, they could hear the sirens as the great Chicago fire broke out. And many that were in his church service went home, and the fire spread and killed many of those people on the other side. The fire worked the whole city and burned everything down. Many of the people that listened to that sermon went home lost. And, and, and I don't know their hearts, and you don't, but here, here's what Moody said. 
I'd give my right arm before I would ever give an audience another week to think over a message of the gospel. Moody was an aggressive, passionate soul winner, wasn't he? I wouldn't do that again. I wouldn't give another week. I'd have said, come now, make a decision for Christ today. So he, that really bothered him. Now, we know God's sovereign, okay? But I don't ever want anyone to leave here not realizing that these altars are open at all times to trust Jesus as Savior or, or to pray for anything. They're always open. In conclusion, I want to say to you, he's Lord. Hallelujah, he's Lord. This is a difficult week as we think this week is a, is a reminder of Thursday or Friday, whatever you believe, he died. But next week will be a day of rejoicing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know what it means? Hallel is praise and Jah is short for Jehovah. Praise the Lord. Can you say that? Praise the Lord. Next week will be a time of praise, but this week, it's a time of mourning, time to think he gave it all for me. I'm thankful for that, but he dreaded that agony. He said, Father, if you'll remove that from me, I'll be happy about it. Nevertheless, your will and not mine. Whose will do you want in your life? You get your direction from him, or you get your direction from your own self? Trust him today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, we thank you for Palm Sunday, your triumphal entry. But Lord, we know that that really was a sad day as he's being set aside for the lamb. And a few days later, would be killed, crucified, beaten beyond recognition. A crown of thorns shoved on his head. Spikes driven through his feet and his hands. A spear through his side. All for my sin and others' sin. He died for the sins of the whole world. But God, we rejoice because without that death, we wouldn't have eternal life. And next week, we can rejoice that he didn't stay dead. God, thank you that he rose again. Bless now in Jesus' name.